Welcome to my true crime episodes on my podcast, NYC Gal Out, about a New York City gal who is out and about in the world and who is no longer in New York City. These episodes are crimes that I have specifically researched and taken a personal interest in, as I've always said about criminology and the worst offenders of society. Truth is stranger than fiction, and in many cases, truth is more evil than anything fiction. On today's episode of our true crime segment, we're going to talk about the Career Girls Murders. So the Career Girls Murders was the name given by the media to the murders of Emily Hofford and Janice Wiley in their apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan on August 28th. 1963. George Whitmore Jr. was charged with this and other crimes, but later exonerated. The actions of the police department led Whitmore to be improperly accused of this and other crimes, including the murder of Minnie Emmons and the attempted rape and assault of Elba Barrero. Whitmore was wrongfully incarcerated from his arrest on April 24, 1964, until his release on bond on July 13, 1966, and from the revocation of his bond on February 28, 1972, until his exoneration on April 10, 1973. This was after what author T.J. English called in his book, The Savage City, A Numbing Cycle of Trials, convictions, convictions overturned, retrials, and appeals. Whitmore was clear of all charges and finally released. Whitmore's treatment by the authorities was cited as an example that led the U.S. Supreme Court to issue the guidelines known as the Miranda Rights, with the Supreme Court calling Mr. Whitmore's case the most conspicuous example of police coercion in the country when it issues its 1966 ruling establishing a set of protections for suspects including the right to remain silent in Miranda v. Arizona. Okay, so let's get into the crimes of the matter. On August 28, 1963, the same day in which Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C., Patricia Tolles, who was 23 at the time, worked at the book division at Time Life. She returned from work to her apartment on the third floor of 56 East 88th Street in Manhattan. There, she found the apartment ransacked and a bloody knife in the bathroom. Panicked, she ran to the building lobby and called Max Wiley, the father of her roommate, who lived nearby. He came to investigate, and in one of the bedrooms, he found the bodies of his daughter, Janice, who was 21 at the time of her death, and her other roommate, Emily Hofford, who was 23 at the time of her death. Next to a bloody bed by the windows, they were tied together with strips of cloth and had been stabbed repeatedly with three knives from their own kitchen. Wally had been stabbed in the chest and lower abdomen, the latter wounds causing partial evisceration, while Hofford had been knifed in the neck. Hoffer's body was fully clothed, but Wiley's was nude and there was evidence she had been sexually assaulted. 
Wally was the daughter of advertising executive and novelist Max Wally and niece of novelist Philip Wally, while Hoffer was the daughter of a Minneapolis sur uh, surgeon. So they both belonged to prominent families, leading the case to create a press sensation. The media dubbed it the Career Girls Murders because Wally worked as a Newsweek researcher and Emily was a school teacher. They were representative of the thousands of young women who had come from all over America to New York City and other larger cities to seek jobs and careers. Others like them now felt unsafe and the police were under pressure to solve the case. Hundreds of detectives were assigned to the, to the investigation and thousands of people were interviewed. But as the weeks went by, no arrests were made. So how did this Whitmore guy ended up being wrongfully accused and convicted. Well, let's get into the investigation. So initially, police believed that the victims knew their killer. The level of violence found is usually an indication of a personal relationship with the victim. I don't think that's necessarily true. There's been so many theories that, oh, well, this had to be somebody they known because the attack was just so vicious. But no, there's been so many crimes where it was committed by a random stranger and is equally as violent it's not a crime of passion or hatred or whatever it's just like you know some drug frenzy killing that the guy here's the thing and you know how like um I, I, I've heard from so many people who get into fights where they say that once they start hitting someone, they just, they can't stop. They just keep on punching and punching. I think that's like the same thing with like, you know, any sort of violent crime, whether it's a knife stabbing, a robbery, whatever. Like once you start stabbing someone, you just keep on stabbing and stabbing, you know? So we don't necessarily think that, um, you know, theories like this, like, oh my goodness, the level of violence, this means that it was somebody that they knew. I don't necessarily think that's true because there's been so many crimes where the violence seemed like it's personal. And then, you know, thankfully with DNA or with some other, you know, concrete evidence, they're able to establish, okay, well, this is without a doubt the person who committed the crime but it was a complete stranger. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, back to the investigation. The level of violence found is usually an indication of a personal relationship with the victim, according, according to a lot of police theories about violent crimes. But that's something I tend to disagree with. Just like, you know, there is no clear sign of what grief looks like. Some people are very stoic and they're just... Um, you know, they have a blank kind of spaced out look and other people break down crying, sobbing, and they can't even like talk because they're just crying so hard. But just because somebody isn't like wailing at the top of their lungs doesn't mean that they're not griefing. People experience grief differently. So I, I also don't think that that is an indication of guilt either when they say, oh, well, I, I told them that their loved one died and you know, they just had a blank look on their face or they were emotionless. And, you know, that to me is an indication of guilt. I mean, I don't believe in that theory either. So anyway, um, and I do want to remind my listeners that all of these police 
theories about guilt or innocence or whatever based on this or that or yada 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 like anything else with psychology it's just all theories I mean even with even with in the psychological field when people you know say well you know this person is this way because of whatever they theorize they don't have a concrete answer it's not the same as like you know where you could take a blood test and be like oh okay well you're hiv positive or okay you definitely have leukemia like this is not something psychological tests and theories are not something that you can have concrete evidence or tests the same way that you can with DNA testing. It's just, it's just theories. Um, so there were no signs of forced entry in the apartment, which was on the third floor of a nine-story building. It was also guarded by a doorman. Though the apartment was in disarray, nothing appeared to be stolen, so robbery was not believed to be a motive at that moment. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so let me backtrack myself a little bit and go in chronological order. The victim's hands and feet were bound and they were tied back to back to each other while Wally was nude and Hoffer was dressed. Two bloody 10 to 12 inch carving knives were found next to the bodies and an additional knife in one of the two bathrooms. Police theorized that the women were attacked and murdered in the bedroom where the bodies were discovered. They did not immediately release information regarding the rape of Wiley. In fact, they told the press that it did not appear that either had been raped but allowed that an autopsy might reveal otherwise. They did say that the woman had been slashed repeatedly in the neck and abdomen. The focus on interviewing the people named in Wiley's screen address book did not lead to an identifying suspect. A $10,000 reward was established to aid in the apprehension of a culprit. So $10,000 back in the 60s is probably the equivalent of $100,000 in today's money. Janice Wiley's father, Max Wiley, penned a book called Career Girl, Watch Your Step, a year after the murders, warning career girls of safety and the need to be aware and feel threatened as a defense. Like Max Wiley, everyone initially believed that the attacks were against women who had careers, as both of the victims fit that profile. Women, specifically white women, were left to feel vulnerable despite their desire to gain freedom and independence through their careers. Hold on while I take a sip of water. <laughs> I would have sipped tea, but I don't have any tea. And, you know, I think like sipping tea isn't really that effective unless it's like a visual that you're having, which is why a lot of podcasters also upload their podcasts onto YouTube so, so you can see the visuals. <laughs> but I'm too lazy to do stuff like that. Um, anyway, so many other handbooks aimed at the safety of single women were written as an aftermath and issued by local police departments and public safety departments. These handbooks mostly empathizes the importance of prevention of the attacks, including having male protection and needing fiscal security. It kind of like reminds me of like the bullshit that the military used to issue in regards to if you're being raped or sexually assaulted by like another um, military service member, like, well, if you're a female service member 
being sexually assaulted by a male service member is telling you to basically like don't try to fight your attack um like like their theory is that if you try to fight back you're basically provoking the situation and endangering yourself because if the guy is already trying to rape you and you're trying to fight back it could lead to like you know maybe the guy trying to kill you because i don't it's it's like the stupidest freaking thing ever <laughs> but it, it this this was like the this was like one of those self-help pamphlets that the military used to issue to female service members in case they were sexually assaulted by a male counterpart yeah anyway let me sip my water again <laughs> give me a minute Okay, that's me sipping water. I don't know, maybe I should upload visuals, um, or not visuals, but maybe I should upload my um, podcast recording onto YouTube so I can monetize on it. Um, I, I know that a lot of podcasters do that because they do get to monetize on multiple platforms. Like, you know, the more they post their content on different platforms and such and I think also like people just like seeing the visuals I don't know I don't know I'll think about it but anyway (laughs) (sighs) okay so how did we get to the wrong suspect right how did this Whitmore character become the focus of police investigation or whatever well in April the following year, um, a woman named Elba Barrero identified George Whitmore Jr., who was 19 years old. Um, he was a day laborer. He was the man that this Elba Barrero woman had fingered as uh, the man who had attempted to rape her a few days prior. Barrero would later acknowledge that Whitmore was the only suspect police had shown her. When Whitmore was arrested, it was found that he was in possession of a photo of a white blonde woman. Brooklyn detectives Joe DiPrima and Edward Belger jumped to the conclusion that the blonde in the photo was Janice Wiley, although her family denied it. The photo was that of a woman named Arlene Franco, a high school classmate of Whitmore living in New Jersey, who had lost or discarded it in a park where Whitmore found it and for some reason he decided to keep it. I mean, it was a picture, you know, maybe he thought she was beautiful or was attracted to her and he found like a school picture at the park and wanted to keep it. I mean, I don't really think that's weird or creepy or whatever. Hell, Nicholas Spark made a fucking movie out of it and everybody thought that was so romantic, right? But when it happens in real life, then all of a sudden people say it's so creepy. And yes, yes, Nicholas Spark wrote a freaking book about it and like Hallmark or Lifetime or whichever one of those networks made a freaking movie out of it. It actually might have even been like a... a, big-ass Hollywood studio movie. You know what I'm talking about? Like some, um, I think the guy was like a Marine or something, and he had like some picture of a girl or some shit, and he never met the girl, but all he had was like a picture of her. Or maybe it was the other way around. I don't remember. But my whole entire point is, okay, so when some guy writes a book about it, everybody swoons over it and they wish that it would happen to them. But when it happens in real life, then all of a sudden it's creepy and it makes you a murder suspect 
in two murders in another state because this guy was in New Jersey but all of a sudden it makes him a suspect in two double murders as well as a suspect in an attempted rape and robbery like what the fuck but anyway anyway so um this Ar- Arlene Franco high school classmate of Wentmore living in New Jersey she lost um her school photo or whatever the fuck it was or discarded it in a park. Whitmore found it and for whatever reason decided to keep it in his wallet, which I, again, don't think it was weird or unusual because, hey, if Nicholas Spark made a movie out of it, out of it and everybody's swooning over it, then why should this be weird? Maybe because Whitmore is black and Arlene Franco was white? Hmm, okay. Anyway, Whitmore immediately became a suspect in the Wiley and Hoffer double murder. Detective Suprema and Bulger proceeded to question Whitmore about the Wiley Hoffer murders, and after hours of leading questions, Whitmore finally confessed. New York City police announced that Whitmore had confessed to the murders of Wiley and Hoffer, as well as the murder of Minnie Almonds, an unrelated murder, and the attempted rape of Barrero. So they did a ringer on this guy. They have this 19 year old black guy arrested and charged with three white women's murder as well as an attempted rape of another woman okay the NYPD announced Whitmore had given details of the Wally Hoffer killings which only the murderer could have known but Manhattan prosecutors noticed that every detail in the Whitmore confession was known to the police beforehand police stated he had drawn a detailed diagram of the apartment and had in his wallet a photo of Janice Wally that had been stolen from the apartment which was false it was not a picture of Janice Wiley it was a picture of uh, a woman named Arlene Franco but you know how they say like oh well black people all look alike to white people well I guess white people all look alike to white people too because these two white police officers couldn't tell Janice Wiley from Arlene Franco and they're both white and blonde so I guess they couldn't tell their own people from each other <laughs> you know i guess these two white police officers couldn't tell their own white people from each other either so hmm, there you go anyway whitmore um he took back his well he tried to take back his confession claiming he had been beaten during the interrogations that counsel had not been present and that his request for a lie detector test had been denied Witnesses were located claiming Whitmore had been in Wildwood, New Jersey at the time of the Manhattan murders, watching a live TV broadcast speech of Martin Luther King Jr. at the March on Washington, D.C., 159 miles away from the crime scene. Despite Whitmore's discredited confession, New York County District Attorney Frank Hogan did not dismiss the indictment against him. Okay, so how was this guy finally cleared, right? Well, on October 9th, 1964, a drug user and dealer named Nathan Jimmy Delaney, who at that time was 35 years old, he was a drug user and and a small-time drug dealer, was arrested for the murder of a rival drug dealer, Roberto Cruz Del Valle. Facing the death penalty for Roberto's murder, Delaney 
offered to make a deal. In return for leniency, he would give police the name of the real career girl's killer, and he claimed it was not Whitmore. Delaney explained to police that on the day of the killings, he had met an old acquaintance, Richard Ricky Robos, who had told him that he had committed the murders of Wiley and Hofford. Robos, who at that time was 22 years old, he was a burglar, small-time burglar, had a long record of drug use and had been released from prison just two months prior to the murders. To support his habit, Robles needed anywhere from $30 to $50 a day, and he would do this by robbing people and burglarizing homes. So Delaney told detectives that Robles had turned up at his apartment on the day of the killings, demanding drugs while his hands and clothes were covered in blood. The chicken Robles told Delaney, I just iced two dames. His clothes had blood spatters on them. Delaney gave him a shirt and a pair of pants to change into. Delaney said he then went out to buy drugs with money Robles had given him. Delaney and his wife Marjorie were fitted with wires and wires were also installed in their and Robles' apartments. Over time, Robles talked about details of the murders that convinced investigators he was the real killer. He was arrested and charged on January 26, 1965. Okay, so second arrest, uh, arrest, what the fuck? Second arrest and conviction. In the autumn of 1965, Robles was tried for the Wally Hoffer murders. His attorneys attempted to um, question the cre- credibility of Whitmore's while Hoffer confession to create a reasonable doubt that their own client had committed the crime. However, prosecutor John F. Keen replied by summoning Rip more and the detectives who have arrested him. Robles' attorneys were unable to translate doubts about police interrogation methods to their own client's advantage, despite testimony that Robles had confessed to the Wally Hoffer murders while suffering from heroin withdrawal and without his attorney present. Okay, you gotta understand, this was the 1960s. The police really had the final say. You know, they, like, what they said go. This was like where um, police corruption and, and all that other stuff. It was high time in in the fast lanes. You know what I'm saying? And it's, I mean, this was before the whole Rodney King thing. And look, even with the whole Rodney King incident where it was videotaped and everything, those police officers were acquitted. That's the fucking crazy shit. So, and Rodney King was what, like 1992? That happened in like 1992, right? 92. I, I can't remember if it was 1992 or 1993, but what I'm trying to get at is even in the 90s, which was not that long ago, definitely not as long ago as the 60s, you know, Rodney King's getting his ass beat by four white police officers and they got acquitted. And Imagine how much worse it was for a black man in the 60s. So that's just some historical context for any of my listeners out there. If you guys are wondering, well, why would somebody confess to crimes they didn't commit? Don't put yourself in that situation to answer for somebody else unless you are in that person's mirror for mirror life. And when I mean mirror for mirror, I'm saying that you yourself are a 19-year-old black man with limited education living in white America 
in the 1960s. If, if, if that was not a life that you've ever experienced, then you're in no position to question that. Anywho. So, um, Robos, the guy who actually committed the murders, um, you know, his attorneys were not successful in casting doubts about the police interrogation methods to his advantage. Um, you know, despite Robo saying that he made that confession while he was suffering from heroin withdrawal or without his attorney present. Delaney testified that Robles told him the motive for the murders was because Hoffer told him that she could identify him to police. It was pointed out by Robles' attorney that Delaney was given immunity in exchange for his testimony. On December 1, 1965, Robles was found guilty of the murders of Emily Hoffer and Janice Wiley and sentenced to life in prison. Just months before, the New York, uh, the New York State Legislature had abolished the death penalty except in the cases of the killing of police officers, prison guards, and murders committed while escaping jail. He was found guilty largely on the basis of secretly tape-recorded conversations about the murder. Despite the conviction of Robles, numerous questions regarding the police conduct in this case were left unanswered. Police detectives who may have been motivated by their sense of justice resorted to highly questionable means to extract a confession from a suspect who was too weak to resist. Their colossal blunders in the career girl's murder case almost put George Whitmore Jr. on death row for a crime he certainly did not commit. No formal charges were ever brought against detectives Bolger and DePrima, who consistently denied any wrongdoing in the case, but exactly how Whitmore was able able to supply a 61-page confession to a double murder he never committed was never explained. Robles, who had himself publicly protested his innocence over the original double murders, did not admit his guilt until a parole board hearing in November 1986. He admitted he had broken into the apartment to obtain money for drugs and had assumed at first it was empty. When Wally, who had been taking a shower, appeared, he attacked and raped her. Hofford had turned up shortly afterward afterward and he attacked her as well defiantly she told him that she would remember his face and report him to the police whereupon he murdered both her and wally the three-member panel rejected granting parole citing the nature of the crime no charges were pressed against the police officers who had obtained whitmore's confession okay so what is like the legacy or aftermath of this whole accusation against whitmore well um, the case of Whitmore and his treatment by the police was one of many examples used by the U.S. Supreme Court when it issued the guidelines known as the Miranda Rice in June 1966 by which when a defendant is taken into custody and accused of a crime, he must be advised of his constitutional rights. The court acknowledged that coercive interrogations could produce false confessions and a footnote stated the most conspicuous example occurred in New York in 1964 when a Negro of limited intelligence confessed to two brutal murders and a rape which he had not committed. When this was discovered, the prosecutor who report was reported as saying, call it when you want, brainwashing, hypnosis, fright. The only thing I don't believe is that Whitmore was beaten. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is a white man living in white America. So, I mean, take it for what it's worth. <laughs> but um, Janice Wally's mother and sister Isabel Wally and Pamela Wally Sullivan 
Um, each both died within five years of the murders. The former from cancer, Max Wiley, committed suicide by, guns, uh, by gunshot in 1975 in Fredericksburg, Virginia. That was the dad. Um, Whitmore made a life for himself in Wildwood, New Jersey. He successfully sued for false arrest and was awarded $500,000 from the city of New York. So $500,000 is probably like the equivalent of a million dollars in today's money. I'm glad he won, um, you know, because unfortunately, a lot of states, especially a lot of states that have the Jim Crow laws, they don't even allow you to sue. Like you cannot even seek monetary damages for being in prison. It's it's so fucked up and and i mean like research this research these crimes where you know people have been wrongly accused and there are stakes where there's no restitution there's no nothing you you know like there's no nothing there's no justice it's like oh you get our apology and that's it like, fuck your apology. Give me money. You know, like, what the hell? Anyway, moving on. Um, so after he got his $500, uh, 500, what the fuck? $500,000 from New York City. Um, Whitmore operated a commercial fishing boat for a time, but he was later uh, disabled in a boating accident. He blew through the award money, was unemployed for long stretches, and suffered from depression and alcoholism. But, like, look, the fucking guy was 19 years old, and, like, all of a sudden he was, like, accused of three murders and a rape, and he was sitting in jail. Like, of course the man, and this was the 1960s, a black man in 1960s. I mean, of course this guy... He, he definitely has trauma, definitely PTSD. I mean, suffering from depression and alcoholism, that's to be expected. There was no way that even with the award money that he was going to come out unscathed from this. I mean, I have PTSD from my molestation when I was nine years old, and I'm still freaking dealing with it, so you know, it's, it takes a toll on you. Trauma, PTSD is, is, it's serious. It's, it's no different than, I mean, the trauma of PTSD and, and the, you know, the physical head fuck that you get from it. It's, it's just as bad as if you were going through any other illness, you know, whether it's cancer, whether it's like freaking getting a limp cut off or something, it's, it's brutal, man. Um, anyway, Whitmore never married, but was the father of four daughters and two sons. George Whitmore Jr. died on October 8th, 2012 in a nursing home of a heart attack. He was only 68 years old. Richard Robos was released on parole in May 2020. How the fuck is a guy who committed a double murder while he was high on drugs or, well, I don't know if he was high on drugs, but how the fuck did a guy who committed double murder had a history of drug arrests and imprisonment for drug-related 
arrests. He basically killed these women and raped one of them because he was basically looking for drug money. How the fuck was he paroled? I mean, he must have been paroled because he was like so old and because of COVID because he was paroled on 2020. So I don't know. But I will say one thing. If he was a black man, he would not have been paroled. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a review. You can listen to NYC Gal Out on Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we're going to get into it.